Whether you're shopping for grads, getting an early gift for dad, or just looking for a little something new or used for your shelf, you'll find it at HPB. And you'll get almost everything for an extra 20% off during the big sale at Half Price Books this Memorial Day weekend. Saturday, May 25th through Monday, May 27th. Save big in-store at your local Half Price Books and at HPB.com. Offer cannot be combined with other coupons. Exclusions apply. To learn more, visit HPB.com. What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at King's Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun this season. King's Island is now open weekends. Have you ever tried a Kind bar? You might have seen them in your local grocery store, coffee shop, or gym. Kind makes delicious, healthy snacks using whole ingredients you can recognize and pronounce. And this holiday, treat everyone on your gift list to the Kind Cube. (laughs) It is filled with a variety of 20 tasty snack bars. The Kind Cube makes a perfect present for any snack lover, including you. And I love this idea. Uh, snacks are a thing that my husband and I sometimes tussle over because we have different opinions about what makes a good snack. The Kind Bars actually solve that in part because you can get them savory and sweet, which is our main area of disagreement. I actually prefer the non-sweet kind, which they have delicious versions of. Uh, And they're made, like I said, with the delicious ingredients you can pronounce, including fruit and dark chocolate. And they are a gift for both your body and your taste buds. You shouldn't have to choose between your health and taste when it comes to snacking. That is why both award-winning chefs and nutritionists love and recommend Kind Bars. And also something you may not think about, uh, but is kind of important, is Kind Bars are made in the United States. Check your packaging on some uh, mass-produced snacks. You will find they are not always made here, which is kind of scary. Uh, Kind Bars are made here, and they're made using ingredients you can recognize, high-quality, nutrient-dense They're whole a lot of times, like whole nuts and whole grains. I, like I said, I love, um, there's a Korean barbecue one. There's a jalapeno one. They have more more traditional kind of trail bar kind of flavors. Uh, You can go to kindsnacks.com slash WFLT for more details about the Kind Cube, which I do think would make an awesome uh, stocking stuffer. It would make a great kind of secret Santa gift too. I just thought of that. Uh, So Kind Bars, kindsnacks.com slash W-F-L-T. More details. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. Some super awkward conversations this week, and I'm just going to be bold and embrace the fact that they're awkward. One of them is a conversation I've been both dreading and looking forward to, which is a conversation about abortion and religion and how and why and if progressives should engage on that issue. I will be having that conversation with Amy Sullivan, who is a writer who covers religion for a lot of places. But first, a conversation with Rebecca Carroll about uh, thanking Black women, about whether or not we should call the women who come forward to share their stories about sexual assault brave, and about learning to live and being undone both actually really wonderful conversations. And if they're a little bit awkward, they're also incredibly enlightening. So stay tuned. 
I'd like to welcome to the show Rebecca Carroll. She is the editor of special projects for WNYC New York Public Radio, a culture critic at large, and the author of several books about race and writing in America. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So excited to talk about your piece about Charlie Rose and a really unique perspective on it because you worked at the Charlie Rose show. That is right. I did. I was a producer there for almost two years um, in the late 90s. So a lot of the the um, the allegations happened after my time there, but certainly the culture um, in which these allegations uh, took place were, it was very much already there. I wonder, do you mind summarizing uh, the argument you made in that piece? So the argument that I made, um, and, and I think it's really important to reiterate, even for folks who have read the piece, is that I am not arguing that it would have been prefer- preferable had he sexually assaulted or harassed me. Charlie Rose did not sexually harass me. What he did was racially denigrate me so that what happened was he, you know, he turned gender he politicized gender in the same way that he politicized race. Um, and so the, you know, the kind of summary of the piece is that I, I realized when the scandal broke that I had had an experience where, yes, we were all kind of in this um, in this microfiefdom of this world that he, you know, that Charlie ran and and there were women who he favored um, you know, and the and the kind of salacious, weird, gross overtures towards women were all white women. Um, but I had felt a, a denigration that was was racial, and I felt like there's there's such a connection the the racialization and the and the the genderization um, are so deeply connected. Certainly, in a framework of white supremacy, which is essentially what places like the Charlie Rose Show or you know, Hockenberry <laughs> or well, America exactly. That's what I'm saying. Is that it's a it's a microcosm. These are microcosms right. that are created by these white men, where they get to double down on their sort of unassailability and their delusion of of what they can and can't do, and whose bodies they can touch and whose bodies they don't, and what bodies they desire, and how they conflate desire with power, and and all the rest. So let's pick this apart a little bit, because it is really interesting. You have to foreground. It's not as though you wanted to be harassed or that it is better to be harassed. Let's just, we'll say that again, because it is easy, I think, to misread this argument. But you're talking about, so he denigrated women in two different ways, sort of. One was the sexualization, and then one was to denigrate and dismiss black women. He sexualized and disempowered white women by preying upon them. And he erased you. Right. Well, he both erased and exploited, you know. So it was, I was there when he needed for me to be there. And I was erased the rest of the time, which, of course, historically speaking, is what happens with black women, whether we, you know, whether it's Anita Hill or uh, Representative Wilson, Frederica Wilson, you know, we're second guest or we're erased entirely. So, you know, he used me in the way that he thought that I would be useful to him, which was to go after kind of very high profile black guests like Sidney Poitier uh, uh, or but when I pitched guests that that I thought were um, that would be interesting or, or offer an interesting black guest, you know, I knew the ones that he that he wouldn't want. There was a certain kind of black guest that he wanted 
um, and a certain kind that he didn't want. But you know, on that on that note of like of being second guess, when the scandal first broke. I immediately went back to my journals from that time. I used to um, keep journals rad- rather religiously um, because I knew that the first thing would be someone thinking I misremembered or or maybe I was crazy. <laughs> maybe I didn't mm-hmm. remember it right. So I went back and my God, there it all was in my handwriting. It was really, it was so bizarre and trippy and, you know, in some way affirming, but it's also like, you know, I, I in one of my jobs um, earlier in my career, uh, I had to hire a lawyer for an incident of of um, racial dis- dis- discrimination, and I and I went to this lawyer and I outlined what had happened, and she said to me, "But you definitely have a case." And I and I remember feeling like there's no there's no triumph in that. There's no mm. there's nothing except someone saying you've been <laughs> the victim of racial discrimination, and I think that that this is really important too for the women who've come out um, with their stories of sexual assault. It's like, there's nothing about that that feels good, you Mm -hmm. know, when you tell your stories. It's, but what it does do is it, it kind of starts the beginning of, of, you know, uncrazifying ourselves. I just made that word up, Um, you know, (laughs) turning off the gaslight, I think is the other kind of way of thinking about it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Now, one of the things I think is valuable about your piece is that it makes a connection that is all too often being kind of steamrolled over in conversations around Me Too, which is that this is not a conversation about sex. It is about discrimination. Mm -hmm. It is about a power structure. Mm -hmm. Like, and I do think that because it's been so dominated by white women, the discussion has been largely the stories of white women. Right. Well, because white women have less to, there's less at stake. For, for, certainly for the white women who have come forward, they are in positions right. of power themselves. Um, and again, I'm not, you know, taking anything away from their stories, but there's a reason that it's mostly white women and it's mostly my, white women. You know, when it, when the Weinstein floodgate opened, it was, you know, white women with a lot of money and power and agency um, mm-hmm. who, you know, brought up these painful memories and allegations, but were going to be all right in terms of their their careers and their lives and their livelihood. Um, and I, you know, I mean, I think that I listened um, to some of the, the the segment you did with your friend Lizzie um, O'Leary. Yes. Um, and one thing you said really struck me, which was um, um, when you heard something something about sexual assault, you real, it signaled for you that your body was forfeit. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking that for black women and women of color, our entire existence is forfeit, mm. right? And and our and our work and our livelihoods. And so the stakes are really um, quite high. And you, of course, we saw with with Lupita Nyong'o, who who you know she was not even one of the worst cases. But as soon as she told her story, Weinstein came after her, even though there had been several sort of more more serious allegations by white women made before that. Um, so it's just, you know, it's it's very fraught. But I do think um, if we have more conversations like this, where we actually, you know, lead through a lens of this kind of hybrid narrative, because it's not just about intersectional or intersectionality, which is largely a, a scholarly term, for better or worse. It's about, you know, it's about... Hollywood. It's about media. It's about, um, you know, all of these places where we have, where we have these microcosms that replicate 
the society and the country and the infrastructure at large. I think one way into this, we're talking about two forms of hegemony. hegemony. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about patriarchy and white supremacy. And for me, in, in your piece sort of draws out a place where they they come together that mm-hmm. I think is a way into this conversation for white women, or at least this white woman, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is, again, t- to remember that this these are stories that are meant to disempower, not stories, these are actions that are meant to disempower. Right. And that they that that is a thing they have in common. They're disempowering in different ways. And the way that it, they're disempowering to white women is actually a way that's even more damaging to black women. That's right. Because it foregrounds our vulnerability, our sexuality. And I do, this is something I wanted to say earlier, which is that it troubles me in this conversation about Me Too because it is so many white women. I worry that the thing that gets people talking about it is this narrative of violation, this narrative of, you know, a Madonna whore, basically, that overprivileges the sexuality, like the, the sexuality of white women, that makes it about that. Right. And, well, for sure. The, not yeah. just not just oversexualizing, but but also that that conflation of desire is not, you know, does not exist in a vacuum. You know, it's 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 that when you look at the the lineup of the women who came forward and, and they all look a certain way. They all mm-hmm. are a particular kind of quote unquote beauty in mm-hmm. our culture. Um and so I think that that it's really important in the same way that you know, and I want to be careful as I say this, but for young black girls who look at that at mainstream media and do not see themselves reflected in film or in television or whatever that may be, for young black girls and women who have come, who who have been sexually assaulted, harassed, uh, and and look and see and do not see themselves reflected, there's no there's no there's no reason for them. There's no they don't feel mm-hmm. safe or they don't feel recognized or they don't feel seen. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something I've been, you know, beating the drum about on this show a lot. And when I get a chance on Pod Save America, which is that I res- I don't want to take away the, from the bravery of the women who have come forward, but to not come forward is not a sign of cowardice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it, it's also, I mean, it's, tr- it's true that that term bravery is is problematic in some yeah. ways. Um, and I think that, I think it's a, it's a, it's a certain level of honesty. And I think it's, it's very much about agency. And so if anything, you know, it's sort of like great and, and almost a way of doing your part of civic engagement. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, I don't, I don't know that I see it as bravery and I'm uncomfortable with people saying to me, you know, because it is because I I have like all of us, essentially, I have also been uh, the victim of sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I don't want to take away from um, our feelings of coming forth, and that that is important and that is liberating. Um, but I don't think it's bravery. I think of it much more as um, a kind of, of of a kind of civic duty to create new language around what we have not been able to get unstuck. You know, we haven't been able to become really fluid in this, in this, in this conversation about race and gender and sexual assault and power and patriarchy and white supremacy. I mean, we're just starting to feel comfortable talking about white supremacy, but the truth is, is that that is what 
that is the culture, that is the framework, that is the history. So that is, that's the model. That's the model for almost everything that, that happens with any kind of, you know, sort of um, formalized power structure. You know, one of the catchphrases I've picked up um, from trying to be more, oh, I can't say the word woke without quotation marks, so I won't. Aware. Aware is also a good word. I think aware is the best word. Yeah. Is um, watch whiteness work. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? On Tuesday night. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, boy. There yeah. was some whiteness at work. And it was also at work in some of the stories uh, that appeared about, and I'm referring to Doug Jones' victory and how it was described in a lot of the media. The lead for the New York Times story credited turnout in suburban enclaves. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you want an example of whiteness working. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I don't need, I don't need, I don't need <laughs> oh, no, any no, I'm actually more, oh, no, yeah. no, I'm really referring right. to more to the listeners right. here. Of course. Of course. <laughs> I know. Sometimes I forget. You're so engaging. I think I'm just talking to you. But yes, no. Okay. Listeners. No, it is. If we're talking to listeners, you probably, we just like, if we could like ride on your shoulder all day, like it would be, oh man, that would be such a great thing to be able to do. Um, Not for you maybe, but it would (laughs) open so many eyes. Uh, So why don't you talk about this a little? I I will cede the floor to you, my friend. Well, Um, listen, I mean, there was, there was a few tweets that I, that I found especially unnerving. Um, but one was by a white woman, I think, who said, what, wouldn't it be great if we just let black women run everything? So to me, that sounded like sort of the grand scale example of that white woman coworker who calls me boo. Like, you, you, you know what? You have not earned that intimacy. You do not know me like that. And you don't get to stand on the sideline and appropriate the work that I have just done for you. What, you don't like that, fam? <laughs> Stop. <laughs> I, I do not. I, I do not. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? I'm, it's like, yes, you don't, yes, th- yes. that's a real kind of, you know, that's an intrusion uh, and you and, and you don't have that permission. Um, and, and it's just also so performative and it's just mm-hmm. so much about that person rather than the work that has actually been done. And so, of course, I'll double down on a lot of what, you know, other black women uh, have said, um, which is, you know, look at ways in which you can funnel money and effort into actually supporting um, black women led organizations and, um, and, you know, think more about legislation and, and, you know, real, you know, real actions that will help us be better and do better and do more. And that you don't actually have to tweet about if you don't want to. You really don't. That's actually that's also an option to yeah. not to not tweet at all. Thrive Market is my new favorite online store. They sell all the top organic and healthy products at twenty five to fifty percent off, and they are shipped right to your door. I don't know about you guys, but I hate most kinds of food shopping, uh, and especially this time of year, people I think for some reason also go crazy in grocery stores this time of year. Um, the, my local a uh, big organic food place that I won't name, uh, was mobbed last night. Uh, and of course, my other option is Thrive. They have all the top premium healthy and organic products that I usually get from this grocery store that I won't name. But unlike your typical organic and non-GMO products, they are not marked up to premium prices. They sell the same things at wholesale prices. And how do they do that? Thrive Market cuts out all the middlemen and works directly with the brands, and they pass along all the savings to you, their members. 
And even better, for everyone who signs up, Thrive Market donates a membership to a low-income family, a veteran or a teacher, so that together we're all making healthy living affordable for everyone. It's a company that I am honored to support. Thrive Market also makes it super easy to shop. Not only is it all online and shipping straight to your door, but every single product on their site is tagged by over 90 different values. So in one click, you can sort the entire catalog by categories like non-GMO, organic, vegan, gluten-free, paleo, sustainably farmed. Whatever it is you feel like is important about your food, you can find it easily at the Thrive Market. You can get $60 of free organic groceries and free shipping and a 30-day trial membership with my code, FRIENDS. Go to Thrive Market slash FRIENDS. That's again, $60 of free organic groceries and free shipping and a 30-day trial membership. ThriveMarket.com slash friends. Keep in mind that Thrive Market's prices are already 25 to 50% below retail. And now $60 of free organic groceries plus free shipping. And listeners will get $20 off their first three orders of $49 or more. And again, free shipping. So go to ThriveMarket.com slash friends. I, I think there's two things that I find helpful correctives for this stuff if one is ever tempted to be all performatively congratulatory to black women. Um, one is spend a day only retweeting black women. Just just see what that feels like and and see what it is like to, to have those voices be amplified. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I think that that, if that is something that, have you done that? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And how does and that feel? And it's more of a learning thing. It's not like this is the only thing you should do. Right. It's more like an experience in like, Recognizing who you follow, for one right, thing. Right, exactly. exactly. That was what I was going to say, is that I think it's really important to follow Black women, yeah. um, particularly because that space, that platform of Twitter, is a place that we are really able to speak um, and and kind of uh, really create a, a narrative that belongs to us. Um, uh, I, and I also think that, um, you know, even if you follow or retweet or tweet um there's also something that 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 happens for us that you can't possibly know, which is it, which is the ways that we're, that we're trolled, mm. um, and the and the sort of the the kind of anger and animosity and racism and sexism that we're constantly having to deal with. Um, and I don't recommend that. I don't recommend that to white women or to to try to understand. But I do think it's really important to take that into account as often and regularly as you can. One thing that I've tried to remember in my journey of trying to be an ally is that there are things that I can just say I'm never going to understand. But to know that I can't understand it is something. To know that you're not going to understand it is a lot. The other thing that's a lot is to feel badly about not understanding. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Which is just, you know, not to like, you know, feel writhing in pain. But the first part of of getting t- through this kind of murky territory and, and frankly, you know, a, a real crisis of, you know, of where we are in politics, race and gender, um, is to feel um, kind of undone, you know. Mm. I, um, I was adopted uh, into a white family um, and, you know, my parents are lovely people, but they 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 really weren't ready. <laughs> they weren't ready. Well, it's hard. I yeah. mean, I I would say I I 
be like, I don't, I know that I don't understand. <laughs> right. So, yeah. so, you know, all these years later, of course, and, and my mom, who is just the most lovely human in person, um, after Trump was, um, elected, had a visit with an old family friend, like really decades of knowing this person. Um, And I had recently won an award for some work that I'd done by the, uh, recognized by the NABJ, the National Association of Black Journalists. And she was sort of bragging about me and talking about, you know, isn't it crazy that Trump, this racist, is the president and all that's gone on since Mike Brown. You know, she's suddenly like using these sentences that have never come out of her mouth before. And this old friend, this, this white man said to her, Trump is not a racist. Uh, Black Lives Matter is not real. And every black man who's ever been shot by police deserved it. Mm. This is someone she's known her entire life. And she called me and her voice was quivering. And she was like, I just, I, I, I didn't know. And I was like, yeah, yo, I knew. I know you didn't know. You know, I mean, that's, so that's between her and I to work out. But she was so undone. And I said to her, that's where you need to stay in that place of feeling undone, because that is a good sign, you know, that you weren't like, I can't believe he thinks that, or that's not true, or you just, you were undone. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is the, that's the place we need to cultivate um, so that we can kind of scatter our ideas and then pick them up together. I sometimes use a metaphor about addiction to talk about white supremacy. It's Mm. not a perfect metaphor. Let me say that right away. But one place I feel like it can be helpful is understanding one's bottom. Yeah. Like hitting bottom. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I would say your mom found a bottom. That's exactly right. That is so, so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And also because it's such a high the rest of the time. Oh, yeah. Right? (laughs) I mean, it works that way, too. It's like, hey, this is great. Yeah, yeah. Um, we I sidebar that because I would I don't want to let the conversation get too much further before adding on to my recommendation of you know retweeting Black women or amplifying the voices of Black women. It's an educational experiment to see how much you already do that. Right. What I really want to endorse is putting your money where your mouth is, and or your fingers or whatever, um, and putting you know uh, buying books by Black women, mm-hmm. uh, giving money to women who are or black uh who are candidates right. uh, for office like that stuff matters and counts sure uh, does yeah and also going to like going to performances of women <laughs> like black women who are doing something exciting in the arts right not necessarily singing <laughs> right 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 and, and also, if, yeah. if you're a parent doing that with your kids absolutely absolutely You know, I mean, it's my, we went, I took my 12-year-old son, who was 11 at the time, to the museum, the new museum in in D.C. Um, And he's, you know, he's more like a sports guy. And he's like, ugh, a museum. I can't even, Mom. Um, But when we got there to the museum, what is it? The National Museum of African-American History and Culture. That's, I always get that, that, that wrong. Um, But once we got in there, first of all, him watching me take this in and being so moved was in and of itself for him, like, wow, this is meaningful. And then as we went through it and he started to connect with certain aspects of it, it was really, it was quite something, you know, even though he pushed back about it um, and it, you know, the first 20, 30 minutes inside was kind of rough, (laughs) Mm. but, but we got to a point and I could see it on his face. He could see it on my face and whatever we took from that day, I know that he still has that in his brain and in his body and in his life. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking, I, 
we're going to have to wrap up, but I want to hit something you, you mentioned in your essay and you mentioned early in our conversation that I think about a lot because of what I now do for a living, which is just mere, it's not even mere, what sounds like it might be mere, but representation. Yeah. Uh, representation in media, representation in arts, it's sort of what I was just talking about. But the reality of that and how important it is, like to think about when you're consuming your media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I that I wrote in the piece and that I um, is that people asked me why I didn't leave um, the Charlie Rose show. Uh, for one, um, I wanted to do well at my job, and I was a young, ambitious black woman. And so the the folks who asked me that, I mean, the real the disconnect of of people not understanding the audacity of a black woman, a young black woman wanting to do something other than survive. But Mm -hmm. also I was very cognizant of being in this opportunity and in this space for the black guests to see when they came to the show, for young folks who I would come in contact with or who I was mentoring at the time. Um, It's just so critically important. And, And look, it's exhausting. I know that for sure more than anybody, as, as much as anybody. Um, but it, it makes such, such a difference. Um, and so as much as we can, uh, for those of us who are able to be in these positions and push to be in these positions and to bring more folks um, into certainly the media, we have to keep trying. And I hate it when people tell me it's hard. Because it's uh, just not. Because it's <laughs> it really just not. I would say that it sort of felt hard when I started. Right. Same. Uh, but it gets a lot easier. Yeah. Because like anything else, it's about networks. Right. And well, about just opening your mind a little bit and like reaching, like not doing the next, not doing necessarily the super easiest thing that you just thought of. Right. Um, right. In terms of booking people, I mean. Uh, oh, for but sure. I also want, I want to also make this applicable to people who aren't booking their own TV and radio shows. Right. <laughs> Which is to pay attention to the TV, radio shows, and podcasts that you do consume. Pay attention to the kinds of guests that they have on mm-hmm. and maybe say something mm-hmm. if you sense a pattern. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that reminds me of the, of the, um, the Hollywood Reporter uh, covers. They're known for Vanity Fair, too. But Hollywood Reporter just put out a piece about directors. It was all um, white women. I think that there was one woman of color who may have been... Um, of East Asian descent, but um, but but to to have that to put that as a, out as a splash, without mm. any kind of like self awareness around it or any kind of questioning or the people in the image like like sitting there posing for the photo like y'all there's a whole bunch of us here and there aren't any brown people there aren't any black and brown people like just to be mindful of that and to you know if you're in certainly in a position you know, where you have agency to, to, to say, this is not okay. It's just, it's not, I, I, it actually, I, it still truly baffles and stuns me that there are folks who will do a cover photo that's all white and not be Mm -hmm. like, y'all, this is ridiculous. It's one of those things that I was talking about patriarchy the other day and saying, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And I think that's true of white supremacy as well. Although I think white people are so good at amnesia. Are, that's how we survive. You know, that's how we live amnesia? with ourselves. I think it's really, it, I don't know that it ever entered the brain to begin with. Hmm. I mean, well, I guess I'm speaking now. Like, yeah. I think you can see white supremacy and then forget that you saw it. Right. Um, 
because but I do think actually we were talking about your your mom's friend and something I talk about in the show a lot. Um, one of the things I'm grateful for for Trump's election is there is and this is the thing to be grateful for. It's a it's been uh, miraculously clarifying mm-hmm. about who we are and about what we need to do. Right, the work that is left to do for white people. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Sorry. Me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Talking about me. Talking yeah. about talking no, about whiteness. And I'm all. <laughs> And I'm all for like, like I've said, you know, in this past year. I wish I wish there wasn't such a big price to pay for it. I mean, obviously, like that is something that I am undone. I am undone by. Right. That the price being paid for me to realize this, the price being paid for me hitting my whiteness bottom. Right. Has right. been so costly to people I care about. Right. No, I mean, as I've said for the last year or so. Well, yes, yeah, since since, you know, November 2016 is that it's just mm. such a trip to have spent you know, my entire career trying to center the conversation on on race and and to a lesser extent gender, but certainly the intersection of the two. Um, and now suddenly have people be like, wow, oh, that's a thing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and so yeah. in some ways I feel, I feel very, I feel a, a good deal of gratitude, actually. I felt gratitude when my mom called me and told me, that she felt undone and she had had that experience. Not annoyed, as I have been numerous times with her over my life, um, for not getting it or not understanding it, but really grateful that she had gotten to that place where she, her bottom, as you said. Um, and so, you know, so as long as people are having these sort of mini um, moments or, or hopefully it'll last longer, but I'm just like shoving everything through the, this little crack, cracked open window <laughs> as much as I can just get through there. I think that it, I think that that is this is a moment for that. I I, I despair to think that we won't take advantage of it because um, I don't. Th- I think these come these moments come once in a century, maybe. Yeah. Mm. And we wasted the last one. The last one was Reconstruction. We sure did, and <laughs> that didn't go well. <laughs> it went very badly. That wound up being a huge you know pendulum swing the other way and repression. Uh, was rewritten into us without ever getting totally unwritten, obviously right. totally erased, um, but even with even arguably more harsh and more invisible uh, ways, um, harder to undo in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so before we go, I feel like I must ask you, so do you want to promote anything? Oh, we're talking about talking about, you know, black women who need need attention and promotion yeah. and cool projects. So I am in the pilot stages of a podcast called Black Folks which I'm hosting and producing uh, with WMYC Studios. Um, and it's based very loosely on The Souls of Black Folk um, by W.E.B. Du Bois. And uh, it's based mostly in format, which is The Souls of Black Folk is a multi-genre book that has sonnets and poems and essays and um, interviews and conversations. And so the podcast is meant to sort of be that, which is an examination um, a not formal examination, but sort of what our souls look like, what black souls look like today. And if you somehow got through school, dear listener, without reading that book, you must read it. It is agreed foundational to a lot of thinking, um, especially about race. And you may not even realize how foundational it is. Uh, Thank you so much, Rebecca. This has been great. Um, I really appreciate you making time uh, to be on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. If you are listening to this podcast, by definition, you are a learner. You want to know more about the world. So I think that you will also be interested in The Great Courses Plus. It is something that I've been using both because they're an advertiser and because 
I don't know, like you have everything in the world at your fingertips. You can learn about anything from award-winning experts. The topics range from photography and cooking to things you might more traditionally think of as courses like history, politics, and science. There are some that are geared for beginners, others that are geared for people that are not a beginner. And there's over 8,500 of them that you can watch from any smartphone, tablet, laptop, or TV, or stream just the audio, uh, which, you know, you're listening to a podcast. I'm, I'm guessing that you have time in your life for streaming audio. And right now, as one of my listeners, you can enjoy the Great Courses Plus for free. I have been listening to Behavioral Economics When Psychology and Economics Collide. It is super interesting. It's about decision-making, and it especially is interesting in that it unlocks some of uh, the science behind decisions that don't seem rational, which there are a lot of in the news these days. <laughs> and it's also about how our own biases affect our decisions and the ways that we can think about those biases uh, in ourselves and in other people. So if you want to experience the Great Courses Plus 2, they are, as I said, giving my listeners an entire month of unlimited access to enjoy all the lectures for free. You do have to go through the special URL, the Great Courses plus.com slash friends. That's the great courses plus.com slash friends. I will confess to you that there's a separate thing called the great courses and it's not the same thing. So the great courses plus.com slash friends for a free month. The great courses plus.com slash friends. And now Amy Sullivan. She has covered religion and politics as an editor for The Washington Monthly, Time, and Yahoo. She's the author of The Party Faithful and co-host of the podcast, Impolite Company. Amy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, I just want to dive right in, although I've wanted to have you on the show for a long time. Um, let's dive in with our listener question. Hi, Anna. Here's my question about abortion. It seems to me that the right stance on forced childbirth starts with religion it's predicated on the idea that life starts at conception. On the left, I think we follow the scientific evaluation that a fertilized egg is not actually alive yet, which is why abortion is not murder. If this entire social issue is based in religious beliefs, do Democrats need to reframe our argument? Democrats tend to talk about abortion in terms of women's rights and healthcare. We never talk about the place of religious beliefs in secular politics. Why is no one doing that? Shouldn't we meet Republicans where they are? So I think that is an excellent question. Um, and I've been looking for an excuse to talk about abortion and religion on this show. Uh, so welcome. Welcome. <laughs> welcome My two to, favorite topics. Woohoo! Fun times. Good times. Um, I think one thing I want to say out of the gate is ground this a little bit in some historical context, which I know you're familiar with, but I, I think probably a lot of people aren't, which is that Abortion has not always been a religion issue, religious issue. Uh, it's actually only very recently in American politics has it become something that uh, people of faith are fired up about, uh, about 1980 or so. Um, in the very early church, uh, it was, to the extent it was talked about, it was um, not a problem in the first couple of trimesters. Uh, it was only something that got discussed when a baby was considered to have a soul, which was not at conception. Uh, it was some time after that. Uh, so I think that that's important. Uh, but of course, right now it is a religious issue. So, Amy, what do you should should 
uh, people on the left be engaging uh, with people on the right over abortion as a religious issue? I'm uh, I'm of a couple of minds about that. I think that there's actually two different issues here. One is how folks on the left and Democrats in particular talk about abortion. And another is um, how Democrats talk about religion. Mm -hmm. But just to provide one extra piece of historical context um, for why it has become such a big issue and why there's such a clear divide between the left and the right, it's important to know that while throughout centuries, abortion was not a particularly big issue um, on the forefront of uh, priorities for church leaders, it became a um, a bigger issue in the 20th century because of a related issue, which is um, birth control right. and contraception, right. which um, really wasn't um, in existence in the forms that we know today until the early 20th century. And so that was something um, that before abortion was really um, on the national stage, at least as an issue that people were grappling with. Um, states were looking at whether or not to allow uh, the use and purchase of birth control. And so that was something that people were familiar with that had moved through a lot of state legislatures, particularly in the 1960s. And what I think a lot of liberals saw was that in practice, Catholics were already um, uh, differing from the church. Um, which is to say that the church um, did not and still does not um, allow the use of birth control um, in order to uh, plan pregnancies um, by couples, but that a lot of Catholics were just ignoring that completely. And as birth control became um, more effective and more accessible, they were using birth control in pretty high numbers. And so as this moved through states, um, people on the left saw that they had allies among um, regular everyday Catholics who also wanted to see it um, it legalized and um, and made kind of normalized. Um, what they did not anticipate is that abortion is a very different issue. It may not be di- different for the church, which likes to talk about. Uh, contraception as being essentially the same kind of spiritual evil as abortion. But for your average Catholic, the idea of preventing pregnancy, even if it's by, you know, um, preventing a fertilized egg from implanting and actually stopping and aborting a pregnancy, those are two very different things. And so I think liberals were taken aback and then upset by the idea um, that the people who had been their allies on the issue of contraception suddenly seemed much more concerned and to their eyes much more delicate um, when it came to abortion. And it was seized upon by the right, that split with Catholic Democrats. That's, it how, was, it be, that's, how, be, that's how this became an it evangelical took a while. issue. Is it that, took a little while because at first, um, evangelicals really didn't have anything to say about nope. Roe v. Wade. Nope. If anything, um, they uh, they weren't opposed to the decision when it first came out um, because evangelicals really had talked so much about rights. And because, again, coming out of the 1960s, um, they had been fighting for their right to practice their faith the way that they wanted to. It was Catholics who jumped on it immediately and by a year after the Roe v. Wade decision had already organized opposition 
um, and this is interesting because usually, um, you know, the Catholic Church is organized by parishes and dioceses, um, but they had organized by congressional district by mm-hmm. 1974. Um, and the Catholic Church was all ready um, to go against Roe v. Wade and to try to pressure um, political leaders uh, to pass a ban a federal ban on abortion. It wasn't until much later in the 70s that evangelicals joined them. Um, and, you know, depending on how cynical you are, <laughs> a lot of people um, point out that it didn't happen until after uh, Bob Jones University was um, kind of knocked uh, for not allowing interracial dating and um, evangelicals began to kind of rise up and um, get upset about the federal government interfering and saw an opportunity um, to form kind of a political marriage with conservative Catholics um, and then with secular Republicans in general. Yeah. And actually not Bob Jones wasn't knocked. They've lost their federal funding over exactly. not allowing interracial marriage. And the, there is a history to this that in the, the godfathers of direct mail seized upon um, abortion in, reach out, in reaching out to dem- Catholic Democrats who were once seen as being diehard Democratic voters. Um, and this, yeah, this uh, marriage of convenience, as you will, as you as it were, um, was formed with between evangelical right and and Catholics. It was almost like they mm-hmm. adopted the issue. All this language seems funny to me to be using now. Um, I <laughs> think that true. history There's is important. But then I'm but now I'm going to say, but I also think that that's important for an individual person to know, but I'm pretty sure you're going to be with me here. That's not the argument you want to make to <laughs> to a person of faith. Oh, no, yeah. it's not. I just, um, <laughs> no, it, I know. I didn't think you really, implied that. I think it's, it's good for people to know because I think right, it de- what I what I think is important about knowing that history is to know that um, you as maybe a secular person are not treading on this incredibly hallowed, centuries-old ground with your opinion. Like, you, your opinion is, it is not a, this is not a matter of someone who has faith versus someone who's like a total, like, um, uh, secular humanist, although it may be. But you, you, you're on, you both have a history to your position. And I don't think you, I think a lot of times liberals are intimidated by uh, people of faith on the right. Like they feel like they have to like acknowledge some certain sort of grounding in something greater than mere, you know, humanity. And there's a very human history to the opposition to abortion. That may be um, what I have seen over the last few decades. However, when it comes to religion in general, is um, very quickly it spiraled out of control after the religious right started to gain prominence mm-hmm. um, to the point where folks who were within the Democratic Party, say, you know, religious Democratic politicians, were afraid to talk about their faith because they didn't want to be um, tagged as being one of those crazy guys. Mm-hmm. And... Um, the party very quickly stopped um, using religious language, um, which, you know, to be fair, uh, religion had not really been part of American politics until really the 1970s. Jimmy Carter is kind of to blame for bringing it (laughs) into American politics. Um, But to the extent that people had been using religious language, um, they dropped it 
on the left, and they began um, putting forward almost um, completely secular arguments. And they were joined by the religious left, which thought that the way to um, appeal to folks was also to distinguish itself from the religious right and to offer um, kind of mostly secularized arguments. So we've had um, a really strict separation between the two parties and the two ends of the political spectrum in terms of where all the religious language is, which is why I think the conventional wisdom became um, that if you're a conservative or a Republican, you're religious. And if you're a liberal or a Democrat, you are not, which brings us to this moment. Yes. Um, when <laughs> We've know, now laid not- all the context out that <laughs> you could possibly need, I think. Well, with abortion um, and uh, how exercised people can get about it, I think it's uh, it's particularly important to know how we got to this point. Right. Um, but here we are, and um, we have this debate where people um, really don't hear each other and where I would argue a lot of folks are still um, afraid to speak some important truths. They are afraid of voters on the other side. And I think it's um, it's really important to know that they are afraid of their own allies because the two kind of big interest groups here, which are anti-abortion activists and the choice groups, um, really are the heavyweights um, rather than the parties. And um, I think that uh, it is easy to see their influence on Republican politicians and um, what we don't talk about as often, but I would uh, argue is really important and we need to talk about it, is um, how afraid some Democratic politicians are of the leading choice groups, whether it's NARAL or Planned Parenthood um, or some of the other women's organizations. Um, and an important caveat that um, I love the women's organizations. <laughs> I had actually come out of uh, college hoping to work for one of them. Um, but I have been... Um, disappointed um, while sharing their goals in how they go about their politics, even as I understand why they take the strict stance that they do. So let's maybe actually start to think about answering this person's question, which I do think you correctly diagnose is actually kind of two questions. Um, One is, uh, how do you talk to someone whose opposition to abortion comes from their faith? Well, I would say talking to them um, is a matter of everybody thinking about what is our end goal here? Because the way that abortion has been framed for more than 40 years now, and uh, I was born in 1973, so it's really easy for me to track how long long, uh, Roe has been the law of the land. Uh, So we're at 44 years now. Um, The way that it has been framed is a matter of legality. Mm -hmm. So you are supposed to support Democratic politicians if you want Roe to remain the law of the land. You are supposed to support Republican politicians if you want to see that overturned. And it's almost a more a symbolic um, stance. Uh, A lot of folks who want to see Roe overturned want to see it because they want the country to make a statement of principle that it's not okay um, to abort fetuses. Um, And, you know, that's an argument we can have, but I don't think that's actually where people 
are in terms of when they think about their concerns about abortion. I think almost everybody is where, uh, and this is going to raise a lot of eyebrows, where the Clintons were in 1992. <laughs> Safe, legal, legal, and rare. It I'm, was brilliant formulation. And it, it was brilliant formulation because that's that's what people think. I, I My one um, quibble with safe, legal, and rare is that I think it should be rare in the same way that all operations uh, are rare <laughs> or should be rare I, in the way that we should all be healthy. Um, my yes. quibble with it is that it, the rare part makes it sound like um, it's a tragedy when it happens. And I, I resist that. But... I do agree that is where everyone is and that mm. it's not a bad formulation, especially in talking politics. Well, I'd love to explore that a little bit more, though, because that's that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. Is um, that has been the pushback yeah. um, from folks in the choice community, um, which is if you talk aspirationally um, about wanting to lower the abortion rate. And even if we agree that it would be good to do that, not by blocking access to abortion services for women, but by making um, unplanned pregnancies um, more rare, the argument is that that is stigmatizing abortion and um, that that's something we can't ever do. Yeah. And I want to say, um, you know, I could not understand more the importance of um, not piling more blame and hurt on the shoulders of women um, who have to uh, decide for themselves when they have an unplanned pregnancy what they're going to do with it. Um, That's something that's incredibly important to me personally. But I think it needs to be grappled with um, in the context of what the stakes are here, Mm -hmm. because that has been the number one concern, um, stopping Democrats from taking credit for all of the policies that they push that have been demonstrated to slash the abortion rate in America. And we should talk about what a policy success that has been. And yet, I would bet you the majority of voters who think of themselves as pro-life don't know anything about that because no Democratic politicians ever claim credit for it. If you have previously listened to the show, you have heard me talk about FrameBridge. They are a company that makes it super easy and affordable to custom frame your favorite things from art prints and posters to the photos you take on your phone. I have already used them for some Christmas presents. You are probably someone that's like an Instagrammer, I'm guessing, because most of us are. Instagram is great, right? Like I feel people joke about, you know, Facebook is about, you know, fear of missing out. But Instagram somehow is warm and fuzzy to me. Instagram always makes me happy. I see pictures of my friend's kids and my friend's pets um, and their holidays and their celebrations. And so I think Instagram prints are an awesome Christmas gift or holiday gift of any kind. And FrameBridge makes it really easy to give these. Now, this is how it works. Go to FrameBridge.com, upload your photo from your computer or directly from your Instagram feed, 
Or if you have a physical item, they can take care of that too. But I'm talking to you about your Instagram feed. So you can uh, upload your photo directly from the Instagram feed. You preview it in any frame style and choose your favorite. Or you can get help from one of their talented designers. And then they will custom frame it in days and not weeks or months. And they will deliver your finished piece directly to you or the person you're giving it to, along with a handwritten gift note. I had something framed uh, a while back. It was the, I've talked about this before, but the very lovely letter that Barack and Michelle Obama sent me and my husband for our wedding that I suspect some other people you know in this network probably were actually behind. Uh, but it's a very, it's a wonderful thing. And we finally got it framed. We used FrameBridge and the designer wrote a note, a personal note saying how nice this must be to have, what a special memory it must be. And indeed it is. So it's real people doing the framing for you. And the best part is that instead of the hundreds you'd pay at a framing store, their prices start at $39 and all shipping is free. Now, you will get 15% off your first order at framebridge.com if you use the code FRIENDS. They offer a happiness guarantee. If you aren't satisfied for any reason, they will make it right. So, framebridge.com slash friends. It's a one-of-a-kind gift that I know whoever you're giving it to will love. It's both personal and unique. It is something that is going to be meaningful to the two of you or you and your family. Uh, There aren't a lot of gifts like that. Framebridge.com, promo code FRIENDS. I do agree that what my quibble is, which is a quibble of some of pro-choice advocates, um, I do define it as a quibble for myself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it is much more than a quibble. It is much more than a quibble for some of the choice groups. Yes, I agree. And I do privately feel strongly about it. But and it's something that I can get excited about, you know, but I also think that we should focus on shared goals. I I think that it's not worth it to have this fight in public very much. Um, that you're right. Like a lot of people, people in general don't know how much the abortion rate has fallen. Uh, I'm willing to It is now lower than at any point since before the Roe v. Wade case was decided. And you can just frame Um, this. I guess my, my, the thing that I would say to pro-choice advocates who don't like to hear the word rare is that you can just frame it also as like, it's good to have, you know, Operations be rare, like I said, you know, like, can't we just agree that we don't want people to unnecessarily have to undergo a medical procedure? Yes, we do. (laughs) You know, like, it's good that people are not having to do this for whatever reason. Well, Um, and what are the stakes? Yeah. Like, by holding this line and saying, don't you dare go out there and imply that we should have fewer abortions. um, The consequences are losing elections. Mm-hmm. And having people in power who will institute policies that hurt women. Like, we have seen that. We know that's the reality. Yeah. And I just, to me, it is a no-brainer of why why would you not go out there and claim credit um, for something that I think um, is a real accomplishment that appeals to the concerns of those voters for whom it's not just a matter of you know, stating as a principle, we don't like abortion. 
it's folks who, who, you know, call themselves pro-life and say, you know, but I think that a woman should be able to decide and you want to scream at them. That is actually pro-choice. Yeah, that is that makes literally you pro-choice. the pro-choice position. Like, what do, what do you think people who call themselves pro-choice are? They're not like. They really do think it's pro-abortion. Pep rallies and really parties do. every yeah. time somebody has an abortion. I, and I and I just think I, I, from part of me is like, is it really would it really be that hard to like frame things as it is good? Again, it is good not to have unnecessary medical procedures. <laughs> it is good. It is a good thing to let teenagers and other people who might have unplanned pregnancies not to have to worry about an un, you know unplanned pregnancy. Right. Yeah. This is never something that a woman wants to have to deal with. Right. Exactly. And I know you could even say the language could be something like if you're a politician, you could say, although it is true, abortion should not be stigmatized. I also say, like, I just want that, you know, like just add a little clause that would make me happy as the quibbler. I want to get back to this person's question, though. Which we well, but I think I think this is answering the oh, question. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Because it's, I look, it's, very specifically, I want to point out that we're not talking about religion. And she asked if we should meet them on religious grounds. And I, there, so there are two ways, I think, my two recommendations. One is the thing that we're talking about, right? Which is to, this is not specifically a religious argument. It's just to say, I respect the, your goal, which may come from religious conviction or not, right? I mean, to this person, it probably mm-hmm. comes from religious con- conviction. Let's talk about our shared goal, right? That is yes. one approach. And that's the one where you and I are kind of talking about. And that's the one that, that kind of works. Um, I had Ben Howe on the show um, months ago, and he's come around. He's pro-life, and his position is now uh, uh, birth control should be free. Uh, it should be sponsored by the government and free to anyone who wants it. It is the number one way to cut abortion rates. Yep. And I think we're going to see, you know, we there's such a lag in terms of um, when states report the numbers. And though I think the most recent ones we have are from 2014. But when we get 2015 and 16 and 17, as, you know, the ACA and the contraception mandate really took hold, I think we're going to see these numbers continue to just plummet. Yeah. Um. The other, but the, there's another part to the question, which is like, do you engage on religious grounds? And I have two things to say about that. One is, mm-hmm. I, one option might be to say, yes, a, abortion is an important issue to you as a religious person, but isn't, it can't possibly be the only moral or religious issue that you have. You know, let's talk about all mm-hmm. of your convictions, which I think is a, good approach for reaching some kind of understanding you know um absolutely hopefully that person does have more than (laughs) there they call themselves single issue voters but you know listen right like if you want to talk about if you want to talk uh have a conversation about um abortion policy that's rooted in faith like make it clear that faith is bigger than just this one thing but i think single issue is misunderstood it doesn't mean that's the only issue people care about I think, and, you know, there's no better example than this Alabama race that we just watched. The fact that so many Alabamans, even, you know, Republicans who hated Roy Moore and did not want to vote for him, the fact that they felt they had to because voting for a Democrat would have meant voting for somebody who was pro-abortion and they were 
They had been guilted and scared out of their minds of what it means to vote for a Democrat when it comes to abortion. I think abortion as a single issue means that it is the stumbling block. Yeah. And Democrats won't get anywhere. I firmly believe that, um, you know, while there are so many issues um, that are informed by people's faith, whether it's access to health care or whether it's humane, humane immigration policies and environmental policies, I firmly believe that Democrats could reach out to people using explicit faith language on a dozen of those, and they're not going to get anywhere until they know how to engage people on religion but I, or on abortion. But I, I can't let us not mention the fact that there are a hell of a lot of pro-choice people who are religious. Oh, yes. Well, and I, whose I'm, I'm pro-choice them, convictions so. <laughs> come from their faith. Yeah. And in fact, actually, I, I don't want to let this conversation end without recommending a book that was incredibly meaningful to me, which is uh, Dr. Willie Parker's book, Life's Work, A Moral mm-hmm. Argument for Choice. Uh, I interviewed him for The Times, and he's uh, a Southern Baptist uh, Christian abortion provider. And he has thought about this a lot. Uh, and the book is about um, how he was raised in this very conservative church and uh, became a OBGYN because he loves women and finds <laughs> that work very fulfilling uh, and wants to empower them. And he came to reconcile giving abortions and his religious faith in this incredibly beautiful way, which I'm not going to do justice to. And I know that sentence must sound crazy to some people, mm-hmm. but he sees it as doing God's work to enable these women to live their fullest life. He has a fascinating perspective and it's definitely worth people looking him up, looking up your discussion with him for a a short primer. Yeah. But, you know, I guess getting back to the question, um, uh, with all due respect um, to the listener, and I'm so glad that she um, called in with this question, but I reject the premise that abortion is the main or one of the only issues um, in which religious convictions um, play a big role. And I also reject the idea that the pro-life position is the religious position on that issue. Yeah. You want to talk a little bit about your personal feelings on this? Like, how do you get to, like, I talked about Willie Parker, like how Mm -hmm. you get from a religious conviction to a supporting choice. Oh, um, how much time do you have? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I can talk about it. What sure. it means for why me. You, why don't you talk about it and then I'll I'll just give a quick um, synopsis. <laughs> and I won't get too theological about this. I think it boils mm-hmm. down to um, not judging, uh, believing that grace is available for everyone and that everyone faces these difficult decisions um, with that truth available to them. And that my role as a Christian is to be of service and keeping someone from having control over her body is not being of service. It's the shortest version I can give. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, so my, um, my thoughts about this are informed by two uh, really uh, powerful, formative experiences in my life, Um, one of which is growing up in a Baptist church. Um, I grew up in an American Baptist church in Michigan, but it was about as 
conservative as you could get. And uh, I was fortunate to grow up um, with some weirdo parents um, who were liberal Democrats uh, and yet who raised me in this conservative um, Baptist church. And the result was they basically um, raised me to question what I heard. And so the year that they um, canceled Sunday school for a month and brought us up to the sanctuary during the time we usually met for Sunday school to uh, hear about abortion from one of the congregants who uh, participated in things like clinic blockades. Uh, I want to say I was just in third or fourth grade, but um, even at that point, and this was the first time I'd ever heard about abortion, I thought if they are saying that some people think it's a good idea to kill babies, it can't possibly be that simple. (laughs) I don't know what's going on with this issue, but that just does not pass the smell test to me. And, you know, of course, it was years and years and years before I actually um, learned more about the issue. But that was kind of how I came to it was um, this seems like a bad faith way for this side to talk about the issue. So I want to I want to hear more about it. Um, And boy, did I end up hearing more because in my first real job out of college, I worked for Tom Daschle, who was at the time the Democratic leader in the Senate And uh, he was a lifelong Catholic, um, really uh, conflicted about abortion because he felt personally um, people shouldn't have abortions, Um, but he was a Democratic leader. And uh, so he wanted to try to find some common ground, um, which we worked on um, through uh, trying to craft some legislation and, uh, of course, failed miserably because nobody's interested in common ground. Uh, so we ended up being attacked by the conservative senators and attacked by the liberal senators and um, pretty much failed to uh, resolve our political and religious convictions. And that sent me running off to divinity school. But um, in the process of researching and writing our legislation, I talked to so many doctors and so many women and basically became convinced that while I believe there are exceptions and there are some women who do end up late in their pregnancies um, wanting to terminate um, for reasons that, you know, you or I might not agree with if it was up to us, um, that in most cases, uh, doctors really are concerned about um, saving a woman and trying to save a child at the same time. Um, the idea that there are all of these women who late in pregnancy just decide, eh, I'm, I'm no, tired that's, of this. That is not true. Yeah. No. Um, you know, every doctor I talked to said, even in a case where, you know, there's a real threat to a woman's health, they'll terminate, but they'll terminate with an early delivery, Mm -hmm. you know, once it's past the time when um, a baby can live on its own outside the womb, which is getting really, really early um, for wanted pregnancies, no couple is going to decide um, that they want to end the baby's life if it could be saved, even at the price of, you know, some pretty serious um, threats um, to the baby's um, ability to thrive. Mm -hmm. Um, And a doctor, by and large, is not going to 
abort. They're going to do an early delivery and, and try everything they can um, to save that child and to save the mother. Um, and it, having spent, you know, a solid two years talking to doctors and talking to women, I just um, could not, I could not um, live with myself having the hubris to think that it's up to me to decide. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess, you know, we, we come around to the same place where um, I am not the ultimate judge, um, particularly if, you know, I am serious about my Christian beliefs um, in thinking there is one ultimate judge. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, just in the same way that I do not get to pass judgment on whether somebody else is sufficiently Christian <laughs> right, uh, or sufficiently, um, you know, sincere in their faith. Um, I don't think I get to pass judgment on um, whether somebody has decided that um, this is right for them and that their doctor um, has, uh, you know, uh, conferred with them and uh, agreed with them on that decision. I think, yeah, we've, we've wound up in very similar places, although you did a lot more work than I did. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little more traumatic for me. <laughs> yeah. And also I did come from a place of having already been a person who was pro-choice and who mm-hmm. then became a Christian. Uh, but part of the reason I was able to become a Christian, this is actually something that it should matter to evangelicals, by the way, was that I came to learn through the writing of people like you that I could be pro-choice and be a Christian. Mm-hmm. Evangelicals, actually, we don't talk about this probably enough, but if evangelicals are really serious about evangelizing, <laughs> if what they want to do is attract more people to their faith, it would be good to not have this be the deal breaker for them either. Like that you can be a person of faith and this can be something that you maybe change your mind about it, maybe don't. But you can still, again, it's about not judging. Um, but I didn't even know it was impossible. Like, I don't think I even fully realized you could be a Christian and still be pro-choice. But you can. Wow. It's one of a growing list of issues that I think um, make white conservative evangelicals the biggest obstacle um, to Christian witness these days. Yes, um, I, we, we're going to have to have a whole separate conversation about it. Yeah. Like evangelicals did all they could to keep me from being a Christian, basically. Um, <laughs> they didn't win. <laughs> Jesus won. I'm glad to Yay. hear that. Um, all right. Well, this has been, uh, fantastic talking to you. Um, uh, you have a podcast. I do. And it's all on politics and religion. So this is what we talk about every single week. It's called (laughs) Impolite Company because politics and religion are the two things you're not Hmm, supposed to talk about. That conceit sounds familiar. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And people can, I assume, find it wherever they find their podcast content. Absolutely. All right. Um, Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. I'm glad we could do this. And that's it for the show. I hope that it was as uncomfortable for you as it was for me. I'm going to be thinking a lot about that conversation with Rebecca Carroll in the days to come, and who knows, maybe even longer than that. The idea of being able to live in the moment of being undone. Is it a lot to ask, or is it? I guess, you know, historically speaking, it's actually pretty much the least we could do. Thank you for making it to the end of the podcast. You are, of course, a super fan. And I beg you, 
to go rate and review the show on iTunes. Also, follow up with our wonderful sponsors and take care of yourself. We'll be back next week. Whether you're shopping for grads, getting an early gift for dad, or just looking for a little something new or used for your shelf, you'll find it at HPB. And you'll get almost everything for an extra 20% off during the big sale at Half Price Books this Memorial Day weekend. Saturday, May 25th through Monday, May 27th. Save big in-store at your local Half Price Books and at HPB.com. Offer cannot be combined with other coupons. Exclusions apply. To learn more, visit HPB.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.